is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. Okay, folks, listeners, choice, you asked, I analyzed. Evan Shinner's here welcoming you to the 41st episode of this podcast where our scrutiny is the Thuringian brook who babbled his way into outer space. Indeed, no joke, Bach's music is floating in outer space. Abroad, the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecrafts launched in 1977, they contain golden-plated discs upon which are sounds of the earth, from babies crying, whales calling, greetings in 55 languages, and music from all sorts of different cultures, of which three selections are the music of J.S. Bach. Both Voyager crafts, according to the NASA website, are now 12 and 14 billion miles away from Earth at the time that I wrote this. Apparently in interstellar space, the region between stars where the galactic plasma is present. Now, when I'm picturing the frailty of my existence, I imagine intelligent life somehow finding one of these disks, deciphering the hieroglyphics on it to somehow play the music, and then I picture some alien, maybe smoking an alien pipe in an alien rocking chair, grooving to the sounds of the gavotte in Rondo, as played by Arthur Grumio. I will put a link to the Wikipedia article about the Golden Record in the episode description. It's a very entertaining read. It details exactly what sounds are on these discs. But after the sounds of Earth and the greetings from the different peoples, Bach is the first music to be heard. So I like to think of that alien's ears perking up once the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 2 picks up on his alien subwoofers. And the alien exclaiming, like Mozart when he encountered the Bach motets in Leipzig, What's this? What's this? Bach's music is followed by Indonesian gamelan music, a very interesting selection of music, so do check it out. It's at least amusing to think about. Alas, this episode is not about galactic plasma. This is the second listener's choice episode where you wrote me, requested pieces to be featured, and I acted accordingly. So today, from your selections, I have chosen three pieces to look at in three different genres. One toccata for harpsichord, the G minor, BWB 915. One piece for organ, the alla breve, so-called alla breve, BWB 589. And one cantata, the famous Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben. Heart and mouth and deed and life. That's cantata number 147, 147. All of you actually already know this cantata, for this cantata is that which contains Jesu joy of man's desiring. That's Bach's biggest hit. That's his number one hit. So let's get to it. In that order, the harpsichord piece, the organ piece, and then the cantata. First, the toccatas for harpsichord. We have seven of them for harpsichord, about five for organ, though on organ, box toccatas are called toccatas and then followed by fugues, almost creating separate movements, whereas on the harpsichord, the seven we have are simply called toccatas. They are relatively early works in Bach's life, and the briefest history of the toccata, which I now give, the term first arrives in Italy at the end of the 1500s. Toccare means to touch versus cantare, to sing. So toccata would be something played with the fingers rather than sung. Now, it was brought from Italy to Germany at the end of the 16th century, where it underwent very high developments, culminating 
in these toccatas of J.S. Bach. So where did Bach learn the toccata? From whom? You might hear one speak of the North German style or the Northern influence on Bach, and this refers to young Bach's role model, one Dietrich Buxtehude. Perhaps you've heard the famous story about how in 1705 the 20-year-old Bach walked that is, walked with his two feet to hear this man, to hear Buxtehude. He walked 250 miles, and there he stayed nearly three months to hear him, study with him, and finally, in Bach's own words, to comprehend one thing or another about his art. Now, one of these things that he would have comprehended would have been this toccata form, as it was evolving in North Germany under the influence of Buxtehude. And how it differs from a prelude and fugue is that we don't have these separate movements. We don't have a prelude followed by a fugue, but rather one large piece where sections blend into one another. The seven harpsichord toccatas often debated what instrument it was really written for. There is talk about them being composed for an organ without using the pedals, or manualiter, as it's known, manuals. In fact, as many of the sections of the harpsichord toccatas do resemble organ writing. This could be the case that they are manualiter pieces for organ, but in fact, since Bach was learning these toccatas from the northern German organ school, I assume that some organ styles make it into these harpsichord works. But without debating what instrument these toccatas could be played on, I, I mean, you could play these pieces on penny whistles if you like, fine, fine, but what is a toccata? I once played a toccata in a class with the great Jacob Latiner, very interesting guy. He asked me what a toccata was, and well, I responded with the old, well, it's to touch versus to sing, and the separate sections and the northern German influence, and he just sat there shaking his head. And then he said, and I'll try and capture his Cuban-Austrian smoked accent as best as I can, first you show you have fingers, then you show that you understand harmony, and then you proceed to execute the highest art of all, a fugue. That wasn't maybe the greatest Jacob Latiner impression, but that's what he said. First, you show you have fingers, and then you show that you understand how harmony works, and then you go and do what everyone was doing best in those days, improvising or playing fugues. I love that explanation. We sit down and we tear up the piano, or harpsichord. Immediately with this C minor chord, we are in the adagio section where we demonstrate how harmony works. But this fast stuff, this is often how many of the toccatas will begin. And we have the two manuals of the harpsichord being brought to attention. Then piano, then forte. So the harpsichordist would switch keyboards, would actually play all this on the lower keyboard. And then when it says piano, switch to the nasal sounding one, and then back to the bottom. Now the adagio, which immediately follows this toccare, this very fast touched section. wanders 
like Jacob the Tyner said, an exercise in harmony. First we have... Immediately a modulation. And then another one. about my piano being out of tune. something like the adagio section. So we could see the contrast between the two sections is immense. And this just sort of wandering harmonic section. Anyways, here at the end, we've made a half cadence. Now what follows is in B flat major, the relative major of G minor, and it's like a two-part invention. Until that point, we've only had two voices, and then the chords come in. And then soft on the top manual.
And we see now, with this chord here, we're in another adagio section. So, so far, the structure, the form of the staccata has been this fast part, followed by the adagio, followed by this sort of B-flat major invention. And now, coming out of it, we have another wandering section. You could see it's a bit faster than the first adagio section. This is the stuff that makes you fall in love with the Takatas. This early writing, so idiosyncratic, certain passages, this one. And then we have, you know, 1990s Eminem in your face with just a bratty fugue. That's the subject, and he's going to fugue this. Now, this fugue is fiendishly difficult. In fact, when I'm getting ready for one of my marathons where I'm playing all of the Bach pieces, this fugue, I practice this fugue possibly more than any other piece in the repertoire. It's just very difficult to get under the fingers. There's the answer. And then the bottom voice. Then we have it in the top voice now. So four voices entering and... And it sneaks into the middle voice. Can you hear it in there? And then Bach, the young Bach showing off, he just casually writes in the score, reverso, reverse. And now the fugue, the subject is going to come upside down. So we had at the top. And now we have the reverse. Now before this gets too difficult, and I'm playing this very fast by the way, let's listen to it.
I'll stop the fugue halfway here because we are in C minor. We're in the key of the subdominant, which in a minor fugue at least isn't so common. So here we have. Now I love how expressive that is. And what's in the middle here? ready to go to the relative major of that subdominant. So we have E flat major coming out of this G minor fugue. It's marvelously beautiful. Those are the wrong notes. And then immediately we have the bass line in the reverse. While the counterpoint gets a bit chromatic. And then I love the top line here. It's just Now listen to how Bach goes from this beautiful serene to something very threatening sounding. And now we're going into F minor. No octaves, of course, that's just me getting excited about this music, but that's F minor. Now, how rare is it to have in a minor key, in a minor fugue, the flat seven minor key? Trust me, it's rare. Let's continue listening to this.
that's the marvelous Christine Schornsheim playing the G minor toccata live. She was the artist who played the fugue and the ending there. Well, it was Trevor Pinnock who played the B-flat major invention toward the beginning. And you saw that this piece is indeed bookended with this idea. A very exciting piece. Many thanks to the listener who suggested an analysis of it. Very hard piece. If you want to cut your teeth on something, if you're a, an aspiring harpsichordist or piano student, cut your teeth on this piece. It is indeed sharp. I don't know. Is that the term? Okay, on to the next piece. The WTF Bach podcast is here in your ears, so don't fear. The Alla Breve in D major, BWV 589 for organ. This piece, I must say, if it does have an interesting history, it's mostly unknown. Even the time of the composition of the piece, the best guess, according to the book that does the best guesses for the time of Bach's compositions, says, early? With a question mark. The one thing you might say about this piece is that it's in the stilo antico, the old style, as there are a handful of works by Bach, and they make for an interesting study, but I'm assuming the listener who suggested this piece doesn't want me to rattle off about the stilo antico, as one can already find writings about Bach's antiquated style, Bach's old style, but the thing that you are not able to find is the way I'm going to break down this piece for you. Unknown to me before it was suggested, which is why I love this stuff, because every time that happens, every time I encounter a new work of Bach, I know I'm essentially in the middle of a diamond mine. And I know that the more I start hacking away at this thing, the more it's going to shine and become this amazing, precious stone of a composition. And indeed, this piece is no exception. Now, why is it called Alla Breve? Well, it's in cut time. That's the time signature is a C with a line through it, and it typically means what would normally take two beats now takes only one beat. Cut time and Alla Breve are the same thing, so possibly the title of this piece just comes from one of the sources where Bach or another scribe may have written Alla Breve to make sure that the performer got the idea. In any case, Alla Breve is not a genre. It's in four voices. The right hand plays two voices, the left hand plays one voice, and the pedal, one voice. But before we hear an organist play this piece on a real organ, I've typed this piece in to get familiar with it one voice at a time and separated the voices into different instruments and into different parts of the speakers. And now, this will hopefully allow the listener to hear the interplay of these voices even better than if you were listening on a real organ.
That's the Ella Breve. You've probably got a hold of this idea. That's, we could call that the theme, or at least half of that could be the theme. But what's remarkable in these Stilo Antico pieces of Bach is that there are so many of these themes that they just keep blossoming. And it's really like a flower. You can just keep peeling back layer and layer, and the succession of new themes popping up is really unending. I had taken all of the music away except the themes, just to see, you know, where the roots are of this music, of this piece, where are the themes embedded. Now, I would play that, save that the themes don't appear so constantly in a way that they do in, say, the fifth counterpoint from the Art of Fugue, where in that episode from the first season, I did the same thing, played only the themes. And in fact, it revealed that there are only a few moments within the composition that don't contain the music from the theme. But there are, even in this piece, a few instances that are just blossoming with the theme. So here is Bach piling on one theme, one theme after another, after another, after another. This is the alto voice. Notice you can't tell, is this the end of the theme, the beginning, the tail and the head are the same. They're just flying out of each other. The pedal's there. And now in the tenor voice, the canon. So that was quite some time with nothing but thematic material appearing all over the place. Here's further toward the end of the composition. So we have a stretto in the pedals here. Oh, here comes the alto voice. Sort of an extended theme, a small lapse in themes, and then sung together, the two top voices, two beats, and then strato in the two bottom voices now. And now here it comes in the top, while the pedals walk down chromatically, and the tenor, and the very top voice. themes, I was struck by another idea that often amazes me with Bach's music. His name Bach means brook, right? A little stream, a babbling brook. And just like the little stream, it never stops. And the fastest rhythm in this piece, the quarter note, never stops. So let's strip the music again and listen only to the quarter notes. It's as if we're saying the themes, they appear like islands we're passing on a boat, but these quarter notes, that's the water that's carrying us. Okay. The piece begins without quarter notes, but then we have the first quarter notes. It's a bit slow going, you know, we have to push the boat out into the water, but now it seems like, yep, we're going.
First of all, right toward the end, over that final pedal point, there was one instant where there was not a quarter note. There was no event on the fourth beat of bar 187. Let's listen to that. There! Did you hear it? It's only a few bars before the end. It's in the midst of these final strettos. If I were to bring back all four voices, we could listen for that moment where the quarter note drops out. Ah, now that we pay attention to it, it's, it's rather glaring. Let's hear it again. chord finishes. Yes, I will play the longest stretch of quarter notes. This was in the tenor voice. And where does this stretch of quarter notes occur but at the golden section of the piece at point 0.618 of the way through and there are no pedals playing. It's in fact the longest pause that the pedals will make. That's Bach 
bringing the drama in the golden section here. And in fact, what happens in the upper two voices while the pedal is resting and this tenor voice is hammering out this river of quarter notes while we have these beautiful sigh upon sigh, intense, this large interval here, higher, that's the highest note there of the organ. So let's listen to that triumphant golden section and then we await, of course, the pedals to come in and bring the theme once more. that one can and should play over and over and find new things. One thing I could mention about these Stilo Antico pieces, it uses fewer rhythms. I mean, I think that's why it's the old style. This piece is sort of made up of three lengths of notes. You have whole notes. You have these half notes, of course. And the quarter note river that we heard. But the dotted half note, that only really occurs here. One, two, three to distinguish itself from everything else, but only really there do we have that dotted half note. And with such sparse information, you find actually a lot more in it because you realize that certain groups of notes you hadn't considered as being part of one idea begin to suddenly blend into a different idea or more than one idea. And you find that a counter subject he embedded, say in bar 10 in one voice, suddenly gets recycled 30 bars later in another voice. I know this is the type of piece that I will continue to revisit and find new things. Now, as for the correct tempo of this music, because now we will hear an organist play it, well, it's indeed stately. It is a giant cathedral. That is what the Stilo Antico is. It's just these notes flying out of the sky in very simple rhythms. But alla breve, but when you encounter that word in Bach, it means that the smallest division of notes here, in our case, the quarter note, those divisions are sort of flying by. So there are actually huge ranges in Tempe. I will show you one slow recording. That is Tom Koopman playing with his characteristic ornaments. But I find interesting that this piece contains no ornaments. At least it gets passed down that way. Bach himself probably would have ornamented everywhere. Okay, let's listen now to Simon Preston and see how his tempo is markedly faster.
many thank yous to the listener who suggested that. Now I absolutely have a new favorite organ piece, the Alla Breven, D major. Okay, now on to the cantata. I know this is getting long, this episode. Let's check the time here. Goodness, it's already 50 minutes. I think I should cut this episode short here. Yes, I'm going to make this a two-part episode. I'm sorry if you listened all the way through this just not caring about this organ and harpsichord music and wanted to hear the cantata, and now you're all angry that you're not going to hear the cantata. But I'm just going to stop the episode here, release this episode early, give you the cantata in a few days. So if you are if you really waited these 50 minutes and were expecting the cantata and now you're upset, send me a mean email. I need to get more of those mean emails about this podcast send me some hate mail okay it's a wrap it's a wrap listeners choice part one season two we're going for it you should like not be listening to this alone you should definitely have a friend and listen to this with a friend and if not a friend you should definitely listen to it with your dog and you should teach your dog to share this on social media send us a donation on venmo cash app or paypal at wtf bob thanks for tuning in and listening thank you Thank you.